Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. This morning I went to print my sermon notes. I do it. It said it was out of ink. It had no mercy on me. So I have no sermon notes, so I'm going to try something I've never done before, just using my laptop up here, as inelegant as that is. I apologize for the ugliness of it, but we'll see if we can make it through nonetheless. Exodus chapter 11. Today kind of feels like the first Sunday of the Christmas season, so you might wonder why we're still in Exodus, but that is the plan for right now. Uh, We're going to continue today. Next Sunday, my family and I will be in South Carolina We're going to go uh, be there for the baptism of our newest nephew. Uh, So Lee will be preaching uh, Matthew 13 13? next Sunday, continuing his series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And then after that, we're going to have a special Christmas series for the remaining Sundays in the month of December. But uh, it's really appropriate to be in Exodus 11 today, and I'll try to explain why I think that's the case in a moment. Uh, But let me just give a little bit of big picture overview before we read this passage. We're going to read uh, Exodus, all of chapter 11, which is only 10 verses. It's a short chapter. And so we have just finished the first nine of the 10 plagues, and they covered chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And now we're going to get into the 10th plague that covers all of chapters 11, 12, and most of 13. What happens here is that the tenth plague, we know it's special and set apart from the rest because of just, if nothing else, the amount of space that Moses gives to the writing about this plague. In fact, we don't even see the plague today. All of chapter 11 is just the announcement that this tenth plague is going to come. And then we'll get into chapter 12, where there is a lengthy section of Moses giving the instructions to the people of what the Passover is going to be how they are to take their lamb and sacrifice it and put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their houses so that when the destroying angel, that is the Lord, comes over the Egyptians on that fateful night, he will see the blood and the houses of the Israelites will be spared. And then if you look in chapter 12, when you finally get to verse 29, the plague actually happens. And if you see how it's set apart in your Bible, if it's the same as in mine, the reporting of the plague itself is fairly short, just a few verses, Uh, And then it talks about the exodus itself, the people actually leaving the country of Egypt. And then there's the institution of the Passover. Then all of chapter 13 is talking about the uh, feast of unleavened bread, which is this expansion of the Passover feast itself. And so we have nearly three whole chapters that are set aside simply to this one event that's happening in one night in Egypt. And yet it's clearly so different from all the plagues that have gone before. And I'm going to say some more in a moment about just the the specialness and the significance of this final plague. It's really its own thing altogether. So, but first, let me read our text here, uh, Exodus chapter 11. Let me ask you if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Exodus 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Father, this is your word that you have given to us, to teach us, to instruct us, to soften our hearts, to lead us towards Christ, that we might embrace him with full faith, that we might be grateful and thankful for all the work that he has done on our behalf, that he has become our great salvation, a savior for sinners. So Lord, would you exalt him in these moments as we study the text before us today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So again, as we look at the tenth plague, which really we don't even get to the plague itself today, I want to help us to see how important this plague is, that in a way it's completely different from the first nine plagues that have gone before. There there were nine plagues, and they're all kind of in this series. There's these three sections of three plagues each that are building on each other. But the tenth plague is its own thing all together. We see this in a couple different ways. If you think about even the rest of the Bible, the first nine plagues are hardly mentioned. There's there's references to them here and there. There's a, a couple psalms that reflect on the first nine plagues, and and they're drawn on perhaps even in the book of Revelation, but, but only very rarely. Whereas this tenth plague, which is the Passover, the death of the firstborn, is referenced throughout Scripture. It's ubiquitous. The institution of the Passover that comes from this tenth plague becomes the very heart of the national life of Israel. Celebrating the Passover on a yearly basis, coming together, that was part of what defined somebody as an Israelite. That was the heart of what it meant to be God's people was to come together in this great festival once a year to almost reenact, right? Because you, you slaughtered the lamb just like they did on this first Passover night and you, you roasted it and you ate it in haste with your belt buckled and your sandals on your feet. You were reliving every year just exactly what they had done that first time. And you burned whatever was left. You followed these directions because that's what it was to be an Israelite. It was to be the people that God had rescued out of slavery in Egypt, that he had set free by his great arm and his mighty acts. This tenth plague is definitive for Israel. In fact, if you look in chapter 12 of Exodus, just right down below where we are right now, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year for you. What's happening in this? All of time is now reordered around this one event. This becomes New Year's for the people of Israel. It says this will be the first month. However you've marked time up until now, it's changing. This is a new beginning. So literally for the people of Israel that their calendars are going to change because of this event. <clears throat> this becomes really not only the climax of the book of Exodus, it's really the climax of, of the whole Old Testament because this will be the event that all of Israel will always look back on. Throughout their national life together, they will look back and say, that was the great event of salvation. That was where God rescued his people. We were slaves in Egypt. We were suffering for 400 years, but the Lord our God remembered his covenant. He looked on his people and he heard their cries and he had mercy on them. He brought us out with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. This is what they look back to. In fact, it's not just in the Old Testament, but even the New Testament is going to draw on the Passover as part of how it explains what Jesus did when he came. The, the Passover, this tenth plague, is one of the great acts of foreshadowing that points us to Christ, that helps us to understand what was happening when Christ went to the cross. We want to say, what did that mean? How do we understand the theology? How do we understand exactly what happened? Well, part of it is we look back at the Passover because that's Jesus was doing an even greater Passover. We know that in part because Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, when he took bread and when he broke it, what was he doing? He had gathered his disciples and brought them into the upper room together to celebrate the Passover. That's what they were doing. It was that feast when Jesus took the bread and he took the wine and, and he would institute a new feast and he would change it. And, and you have to think what that meant for Israelites that for centuries and centuries and centuries had gathered every year to do Passover exactly the same way. And now here is Jesus. He says, from now on, you will gather and you'll take bread and you'll take wine and you'll break the bread and you'll pour out the wine. And, and, and this will be what it means to be God's people. You're not going to keep the feast of Passover anymore. You'll observe the Lord's Supper. And the meaning of the Lord's Supper itself is taken from Passover. And so we see that as we get into this 10th plague, we're dealing with the, the very heart of God's salvation in the Old Testament. It is so significant. And that's why, in part, three chapters are dedicated to explaining this last plague. That it's not like the others. It's different. It's set apart. And so we'll take our time as we go through it, both today and then in January when we pick up in Exodus again. But here's three things I want us to see in this chapter today. First, this chapter is the announcement of salvation. Second, it tells us of the blessings of salvation. And third, it describes for us the fearful accomplishment of salvation. It is the announcement of salvation, it describes the blessings of salvation, and it describes for us the fearful accomplishment of salvation. And, and that may not seem Christmassy at first, but... I, you'll see that it is, hopefully, as we get into this. And I, and I do hope that as we are preparing for Christmas, that this chapter, chapter 11 of Exodus, will help you to appreciate the announcement of our salvation in Christ, to appreciate the blessings that are ours in Christ, and to, to think deeper thoughts and to have greater appreciation for the fearful accomplishment of salvation in Christ. But first, 
really what this whole chapter is, it is, it is the announcement of salvation. And as I thought on that, preparing to preach on it today, this Sunday, that is sort of the first Sunday of the Christmas season, I thought, this is so appropriate in its own sort of Exodus-like way to preach today. Because what we think of when we think of the first Sunday of Christmas is we think, well, we might do something very traditional, like talk about the angels or the wise men or the shepherds or some of the announcements of salvation that God in his way would proclaim to his people, that a savior was to be born. And it was these announcements that God was getting ready to act in an unprecedented way that he had never done before. And really, that's what this chapter is. It's God's announcement through Moses to his people that he is getting ready to act in an unprecedented way for their salvation, something he's never done before. He's announcing that he is about to bring salvation. In fact, this week, turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I was reading this this week. And in Luke chapter 1, there's, we have this, these well-known stories of Mary... At the birth of Jesus, Mary visits her sister Elizabeth and, and they have this discussion and the baby leaps in her womb. And in verse 46, Mary sings this song, this Magnificat that it's called. And just listen to the, these words. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who has mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I would suggest if, if you didn't know that I was reading that out of Luke chapter 1, and that that was Mary who was saying it, you might hear that and you might think, this is, this is an Israelite of old singing about the coming of the Passover. You might think they're, they're singing that God has looked upon the humble estate of his servants, and he who has mighty has done great things for them. Holy is his name, his mercy for those who fear him, for he has shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. That is exactly what God is getting ready to do. That's exactly the description of the salvation he's about to bring on Israel. And so we see that the salvation at the Passover, it's a type of what he's getting ready to do in Christ. Which is why it's so good for us to go back to the Passover because it helps us to see and it helps us to understand what happened in Christ and what happens at the cross and what happens in God's salvation. Even the end of Mary's song, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. That's the hope of the Israelites as they're sitting in Egypt on these last days of their captivity. God in his mercy will remember his promises and that he'll begin to act on behalf of his people so to go back to Exodus 11 and to say, this is the announcement of salvation. I, I decided this was actually quite appropriate for the day. It's just like the angels, sort of. It's, it's sort of like that, but it shows us the same themes and it brings out the same aspect of what it means for God to remember his promises, to act in mercy, 
to see his people and to save them in the very particular way that he is going to bring salvation for them. There's a very particular way, and it's the same in the Passover as it will be when Christ comes at the cross. This is the announcement that God is getting ready to act. You can even think of it this way. Mary is singing because the people of God have been waiting for about 400 years of prophetic silence, waiting for God to act. When is God going to do something? When is he going to remember his promises? How long were they in Egypt? It was about 400 years of waiting, wondering, when is God going to act? When is he going to remember his promises? When is he going to come and flex the strength of his arm on behalf of his people? Here it is. Here it is. So look at this chapter, because as we've said, this is not the plague, this is just the announcement of it. This is all this chapter is just the warning. Here it is in in verse 4. Moses says to Pharaoh, he's talking to Pharaoh, this is apparently before he has left Pharaoh at the end of the last chapter. Because he ended chapter 10 saying, I will not see your face again. So apparently he hasn't left yet. He's still there. He's still speaking to Pharaoh. And he says to him that he just gets right into it in verse 4. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. There's no warning. There's no, let my people go or else. And if not, then God is going to come. There's no, there's no command. There's no question. There's no chance to escape. He simply says, about midnight, tonight, this night, the Lord is going to go out into the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. This is just the announcement of what God is going to do. There is no warning, there's no asking, there's no commanding. He also tells Pharaoh exactly how it's going to end. He tells him in verse 8, All these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow me. There is no doubt in Moses' mind that this is the last He sat through nine of them that that haven't yet resulted in their freedom, but he knows this is the one that does. He knows ahead of time. They will come after this plague, and they will threaten him, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And he says, He'll get out. And verse 8, He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I like that. Moses isn't messing around here. He says what he has to say, drops his mic, as it were, and he's out in hot anger. He has given Pharaoh the last word. He's going to speak to Pharaoh. He doesn't speak to him again. He doesn't see him again. He'll leave Egypt. He might see him in the distance, I suppose, and he might see him as the waters of the Red Sea come crashing down on his head. But there's no more speaking with Pharaoh. This is it. He's given him the warning. He's given him the announcement of what God is about to do. Pharaoh doesn't even have any lines in this chapter. His part is done. This part is done. He has no opportunities left. Moses announces the coming salvation. Now, he also describes in this chapter the blessings of salvation. And there are a lot of blessings of salvation described in this chapter. And I want us to see some of them. I need to see these blessings because it's easy for me to give most of my brain space away to difficulties and complaining. So I need to make room sometimes to see the blessings 
that are ours in Christ. Look at some of the blessings that are described in this chapter. Number one, of course, the ultimate blessing for the people of Israel is that they're about to have their freedom. They've been enslaved for 400 years, and, and recently it's been bricks without straw. It's been getting worse. The Egyptians have tried to kill their children. It's been harsh, and yet freedom is almost here. They're going to have the blessings of freedom, and yet as I think about that, I think that is a fantastic blessing, and it's one of the blessings that are, is ours in Christ, is that we're free from condemnation, we're free from death, we're free from fear. But we need to think about the word because as Americans these days, we tend to misuse that word, freedom. We misuse it when we assume that freedom means freedom from every constraint. And I am free to do whatever I want, to act however I want, to say whatever I want. In fact, that's how we often use it. We say, no one can tell me what to do. I make all my own decisions because I'm a free person. Well, ironically, the Bible would call that slavery. That's not freedom according to the Bible. It's not as though God simply took the people of Israel and he rescued them and he took them out of Egypt and he dropped them in the wilderness and said, all right, you're on your own. Do whatever you want. Because that's not freedom. What freedom looks like in the salvation that God brings is actually quite different. What God does is he takes the people who have been owned by Pharaoh and abused by Pharaoh and enslaved by him and he frees them from that and says, instead, you will be my people and I will be your God and I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to rescue you and, and draw you to myself on eagle's wings is what he says in Exodus 19 and I will make you mine. See, it's not a, a, a question of either belonging to Pharaoh or being on your own. It's a question of, do you belong to Pharaoh such that he's going to abuse you and kill you with slavery? Or do you belong to the Lord such that he leads you on the path of life, on the path beside quiet waters and, and shepherds you in, in green pastures, on a path that leads to life? He says, I'm going to make you mine and I will care for you. I'll give you my word. I'll give you my statutes, my revelation. Uh, see, what, what Exodus describes for us is not simply the story of Israel going from slavery to freedom. It's better than that. It's out of slavery into being the people of God and learning how to worship the one true God and learning how to walk in his ways. That's why Exodus doesn't end after the Passover. Instead, it continues, in, and the Lord brings the people to Sinai, where he's going to give them his law. And David says, how I love your law. It's a, this gracious gift of the Lord, and he teaches them what it means to truly walk in freedom. The Israelites could not walk in freedom apart from God's law that he would reveal at Sinai. He said, this is how you live as a free people. And he, it wouldn't end there, because he would reveal to them the instructions for the building of the tabernacle bit by bit, detailed info by detailed info so that they could learn how to worship the one true God in a way that was pleasing to him. See, he's filling up what it means to be a free people. Not just that you're out of Egypt, that's part of it, but now we learn what it is to walk in the light of the Lord. We learn what it is to live in a way that pleases the Lord. We learn what it is to give our lives to him in worship. It's the very same for us today that that God has not saved us so that we can simply live however we want. So that we can say we're free and no one can tell us what to do. 
has saved us instead that, that we might walk in the pursuit of holiness. That we might seek first His kingdom, glorifying Him in all that we do. That we might learn what it is to please the Lord, seeking Him in the pursuit of godliness. That's what real life is. That's what God has saved us for, not to be our own masters, but to submit humbly and joyfully to the one who, who raises up the humble, who lifted us out of the dust, who drew us to himself and says, I and I alone give you life. And we receive life from his hand. To, to reject that and to say, I will be my own boss, that's no freedom, that's no life. It's just slavery and death all over again. And so this is where the people are with their blessings. They're going to receive freedom to be the people of God, to walk in his way, to learn from his word. Look at the other blessing that this chapter mentions, at least one of the others in, in verse 2, where Moses says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And verse 3, get this, The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was great in the sight of the Egyptians. How could this happen? Here's this people, the Israelites, who have been the slaves for 400 years. And in my experience, slaves just don't go demand that their masters give them all their silver and gold. And the masters say, okay, I will do it. Especially when those slaves have recently been praying for their salvation and their God has been beating up their masters. And yet in the midst of that, the masters do not hate the Israelites. God gave the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, such that as they are going to go out, they are going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to take all their silver and gold with them, and they will come out of Egypt enriched in every way. How could this happen? It is pure God's favor. But look back at Genesis chapter 15, because this is not new. This was part of the promise. Genesis 15, 12 through 16. As God is making his covenant with Abraham, and we remember again, Mary, Mary sang about this, that God remembered his promise to Abraham. This is part of it in chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. See, he said this. This was part of the promise that they would go to Egypt and be enslaved for 400 years, but even more than that, that they would come out with great possessions. This is not just a tacked on bonus at the end of slavery. This was part of God's plan all along. And this is one of the great aspects of these stories of the plagues in my mind. Almost every plague that we've read so far has ended with something like, Pharaoh hardened his heart as the Lord told Moses. As the Lord had said. See, if you're just one of the outside observers who's just looking and you're on the ground level with them on the sidewalk, what you see is that this poor nation Israel is being oppressed. And their leader Moses is doing all that he can to get them out. And he's bringing all these signs and all these wonders. All these plagues are coming upon Egypt. And it's not working. 
it's hopeless. Sometimes it looks like it's going to work, and Pharaoh's like, okay, well, I think I'm going to let you go, but then he changes his mind, and he hardens his heart, and it's failure. And they get their hopes up, and then it doesn't work. And to the outside observer, that just looks like failure. It looks like there is no God who is with them. There is no one who has planned this out beforehand. But to the eyes of faith that, that remember the promises, and that have now we read in God's word and everyone ends and it says this is exactly as God had said it was going to be. That he told Moses and the Israelites ahead of time that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He was going to make Pharaoh be this way in order that he might display all his wonders before Egypt. And now there's this aspect of coming out with great possessions. Again, just as the Lord had said. To the eyes of faith we read this and, and it's not... Uh, it doesn't hurt our faith, but it strengthens it as we see that God has been sovereignly in control of every aspect. He has been sovereignly in control of the fact that Israel went into slavery, sovereignly in control of Pharaoh hardening his heart, making their life miserable, placing great burdens upon them. He's also been sovereignly in control of planning their salvation, of bringing them out of slavery, of giving them great blessings, great wealth, great riches, even as they come out. Just as Mary would sing, those who are on the thrones he's brought down, the rich he brings down, but the poor he lifts up and he raises them up. And that's what God is doing in one fell swoop on this one night. He raises the Israelites up from the dust and he humbles the Egyptians and he gives all their wealth to his people. Why? Because God has divinely given his people favor in the eyes of their enemies. There's no human explanation for how that happens. There's no human explanation for how the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. Why is he great in their eyes? He's the enemy. He's the one who has walked in nine times already and, and announced plagues on their houses, who's brought flies and frogs and locusts and darkness. Why do they revere him? Except that the Lord is now starting to act on behalf of his people. And in announcing this great salvation, it's not just freedom, but there's all these attendant benefits that come with the salvation that God brings to his people. And so we have an announcement of salvation. We have the blessings of salvation. And now finally we have the description, this description of the fearful accomplishment of salvation. Why do I call it the fearful accomplishment of salvation? Because it is fearful, isn't it? When we read the description of what's going to happen in the Passover. There's two sides to a story of salvation like this. And read just verse 4, at midnight the Lord goes out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the mill and all the firstborn of the cattle it makes all the difference in the world which direction you're looking at this plague from. To the Israelites, this is the announcement of salvation. This is God's grace and his mercy, his glory, his power, his strength being revealed on their behalf to save them from their suffering. For the Egyptians, this is the announcement of God's terrible wrath, that his just and perfect justice is now coming on them for their sins for their wickedness, for their evil. And yet, it's in the very midst of this act of God's judgment that his judgment falls 
And yet he's going to describe how the Israelites, they, God's people, will be sheltered from the judgment by taking refuge with the blood of the Lamb protecting them so that as his judgment on wickedness falls, they're saved by his mercy. See, their salvation consists in both mercy and justice together at the same time. And this is where the Passover is so interesting because at least in my experience, when we think of the cross, for those of us who have grown up in church, when we think about salvation, we're so, uh, we default so quickly to thinking about God's mercy and his grace and his love shown at the cross, which is absolutely true. But do we forget that that's also the greatest act of God's judgment pouring out his wrath on sin that ever will be? And that our salvation, the reason we're saved is because his mercy and his judgment were revealed at the very same time in the very same act. And God poured out all his judgment against our sin. But it landed on Christ. And by his mercy... As we are sheltered under the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, we are saved in that very act of judgment. It's mercy and it's judgment that come together. And it's so much more clear to us to see in the description of the Passover because it's so violent. The judgment that God brings on Egypt, that they perfectly deserve, is so clear, it's so upfront, the death that is coming. And yet it's, it's judgment, it's mercy. It's judgment on Egypt. It's mercy on God's people. See, God gets glory when he brings salvation through judgment. That's the very act of salvation. Think of Noah. It was an enormous act of judgment on the wickedness of the earth, and yet his people, this family that feared the Lord, was saved in mercy through the judgment. The Israelites now, God's people, are being saved by his mercy through the judgment. And we, as believers in Christ, at the cross... It's a revelation of his judgment, and by his mercy, we are saved through it. We are saved through it that we might not experience the judgment and the wrath, but Christ does. But Christ does. And so one of my hopes for us is that as we consider the story of the Passover, and it's sort of straddling Christmas because we're starting it today and we're going to come back to it in January, so a little before, a little bit after, one of my hopes is that it will help to deepen our appreciation for the salvation that was announced and brought at Christmas time. But as we think about what Jesus has come to do, that, that we'll not merely see the grace, I hope we see all the grace, but that grace was sheltering us from God's holy justice. It protected us from that. Because in ourselves, if we were left to our own devices, which did we deserve? We don't deserve to be on the mercy side deserve to be on the justice side. But in God's mercy, he looked on us in his grace and he shelters us from his judgment. Christ himself takes the judgment that we deserve. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I hope at Christmas time it will help us as we reflect on what it means that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That in him we become the righteousness of God what it means that, that First John will say, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us in giving his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I hope we can look on the story of our salvation at Christmas 
and have it be deepened, maybe our appreciation be broadened for what we see, for who Christ is, for what he's done for us. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and, and look forward just a little bit to verse 26 and 27. This is part of Moses' description of what the Passover celebration will be year by year as they look back on this in verse 26. And when your children say to you, that is in the midst of the celebration, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Part of my hope is that this Christmas, as we celebrate as a church family, as individual families, as people together, maybe there will be opportunity for the, the kids to ask, what do we mean by this celebration, by this service? What do we mean by Christmas? What do we mean by the Lord's Supper when we do this? We'll have opportunity to say that, that when Jesus came to save his people, God was coming in wrath against sin with the death that we deserve for our sins, but he brought his judgment on Jesus so that we might be spared. We received mercy from God through Christ in the face of the judgment that we deserve. And the people will bow their heads and worship the Lamb of God who brings our salvation. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We ask that your spirit will be with us now as we contemplate these words and as we go from this place to, to think on them. We ask that you will press them on our hearts. Lord, that we might be deepened in our knowledge of you and in our love for you. That we'll have an even greater appreciation for all that you are for us in Christ and all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we ask that you will not Allow us today to be those people who look into a mirror and immediately go away and forget what we look like. Don't let us be those people who hear your word and, and do not take it to heart. But Father, may, may we store it up, may we reflect on it, and may we practice it in our lives. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.